Um, today we're speaking from Matthew 17, verses 22 to 27. I'll just read that passage to start off. When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. And after Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, Doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he does, he replied. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon, he asked. From whom do the kings of earth collect duties and taxes? From their own children or from others? From others, Peter answered. Then the children are exempt, Jesus said to them. But so that we may not cause offence, go and take a, go to the lake and throw out your line. Take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for the ta- for my tax and for yours. So it's not a long uh, passage today. Um, so Jesus, after last week, we know that he was uh, he he just healed a a demon-possessed boy, and he relented that the faith of the disciples was small and that what were they going to do? Um, he was not going to be with them for very much longer. And uh, this passage starts off with him reminding them what was going to happen to him, that he was going to be killed, del- delivered to men, killed, and he would raise, be raised again on the third day. It's uh, worth noting that whenever Jesus taught um, about his death, he also taught about his resurrection. So it's important that we remind people, we don't just say Jesus died for them, but Jesus rose for them as well, to show that that was uh, part of the whole deal, that we would be raised again. And he's going, and the disciples basically aren't ready. Now the temple tax, uh, which is, starts at verse 24, the, the collectors have gone to um, Peter and said, doesn't your teacher pay the tax? Maybe they're looking for an excuse to get upset with him. Maybe they're not, I don't know. But Peter says, yes, he does. So Jesus' habit was to pay this tax. Every year he would pay the tax. Um, So he hasn't said anything before, so Peter just assumes he'll pay it again this year like he has before. Um, Now we know because they were in Capernaum, this tax is normally gathered at Passover in Jerusalem. They were in Capernaum, so it's probably about a month before Passover. The tax would often be collected early and then taken to Jerusalem. So it's about a month before he's handed over to the people to be crucified. So Peter's coming into Jesus, probably going to say, uh, how do I pay this tax? Where's the money? But before he can say anything, Jesus asks him the question about who's, who pays taxes, the king's son or others? And it's pretty obvious, others. Now Jesus has been teaching his disciples that he is God's son. He's trying to teach them to take what they learn, what he's teaching them, and apply them to real situations, and Peter in particular. And so Peter, by answering the question from others and not from his son, has answered his own question. Jesus is exempt from the temple tax. He doesn't actually have to pay it. He has no obligation to pay it. But in verse 27, he says, but I will, so that I don't cause offence. So... I will do more than is expected of me. Now, Peter, what I want you to do is I want to go to the lake and throw in your line. Okay, now, so Jesus is going to pay this tax. He's going to 
go beyond what was required of him, but he's going to rely on God's provision to do it. So if you think about Peter, Peter's a professional fisherman, used to fishing with nets. Throw the net out and bring it in and hopefully full of fish. You don't use a line if you're a professional fisherman. So God is at, Jesus is actually saying, God's going to provide this tax for me. And just so there's absolutely no doubt that it's God, you're going to take a line, you're going to throw it in the lake, and the first fish you catch is going to have a coin in it. We're not going to throw a net in and get 100 fish and go through them until we find one with a coin. I, don't, I mean, I don't know how regularly fish have coins in their mouth, but I imagine, I imagine it's not very often. But Jesus is making sure that it's really clear to Peter that God provided this. One line, first fish, four drachma coin. Peter's probably thinking, this is crazy, this is not how you fish. God, you don't know what you, Jesus, you don't know what you're doing, this is not how. If I'm going to go fishing, where's my net? So Peter's probably got all these doubts in his head, but he still does what he's been asked. And the fish comes up, four drachma coin, he goes and pays off the temple tax. So there's the five verses covered pretty quickly. What, what do we get from that? Well, we learn that Jesus often goes beyond his obligation for us. This whole, this, this tiny section is a picture of what redemption is all about. Jesus doesn't have to die for sin. He has no sin. He's not required to die for sin. He doesn't have to do, make the sacrifice he's about to make. He chooses to go beyond that um, for us. Now, it's interesting that for me when I read this, I, I saw a line which I've never seen before, hadn't joined to me. In verse 27, it says, we'll pay so as not to offend. Who is it he's worried about offending? In a month, the people he's worried about offending are going to deliver him to Pilate to be crucified. This is, to me, it's just out of, I mean, I try not to offend the people I like. Not that hard, but I try. But it's hard to imagine not wanting to offend someone you knew was going to put you to death in a month. Why would you care? It's not like they're going to love him because he paid the tax. So he's going above and beyond for his enemies. He's giving them no excuse for what they're about to do. So sometimes it's about us going above and beyond for the people who don't like us. The people who are making our lives difficult. They're the people we're supposed to love. Are we? Yeah, maybe we can just ignore the people who don't like us. Maybe we think that's enough. Jesus wants us to go beyond that. People are making our lives difficult. We've got to go above their expectations and do the right thing by them. It won't necessarily change their opinion of us. But God wants us to show love with extreme, with, with an extreme, I guess, energy in that. Now, that, that for me reminded me of a whole bunch of other unusual and sometimes overlooked behaviours behaviors of Jesus. We often concentrate on Jesus as the person who does miracles, Jesus as the one who, who draws crowds together. But if we look through the scriptures carefully, we see little behaviours that stand out or stand out to me. For example, in John 5, 6, he walks up to a man who's behind, next to the pool of um, Bathsheba or Bathsheba, some pool where people go in and get healed. And Jesus has the power to heal people. And he says to him, do you want to be healed? He asks a strange question. Who wouldn't want to be healed? If I had the power to heal people, I'd probably go around healing people as I saw them. But Jesus doesn't impose his will upon anybody. He asks him if he wants to be healed. And that man, I mean, 
his life was around begging and around surviving around that pool. Jesus didn't disrupt his life. Jesus gave him that choice. And whereas often the takeaway from that is Jesus can perform miracles if he wants to. Now, Jesus can perform miracles if people invite him to perform those miracles. Sometimes I know I'm guilty of trying to insist that people live their life the way I suggest because obviously they've got problems and I know best what's best for them. Sometimes I need to say, do you want help? If you want help, I'm willing to give it to you. If you don't, sometimes I have to stand back and watch them destroy themselves or hurt themselves because it's not loving to force our will onto other people. Jesus is here to, to win the world and so often, but yet often you see him making declarations about things that causes his following to decrease or he hides from the crowds because the crowds aren't really concerned about him and his spiritual kingdom, they're concerned about a physical kingdom on the earth. Um, John 6, 53-64, where he's talking about eating the living bread, drives a whole bunch of his followers away. They can't deal with that teaching. And so his, his following sort of evaporates. Winning God's, God's kingdom is often done in ways that we don't really appreciate in a physical sense. That's not how I would, I'd be wanting to build a following. I might be a bit reluctant to say things that people wouldn't like because I'd be concerned with numbers. So I think often we find, I find that Jesus isn't who I expect. He's not the Jesus of the Sunday school who performs miracles and does all these magical things. He's consistently odd during his um, gospel. If we read, we'll see little hints of him going above and beyond those big things. If we read the details, as I said, I'd never noticed the words, so he wouldn't offend. I just saw him pay the tax. I concentrated on the fish. Wow, suddenly there's a fish with money in its mouth to pay the tax. I never noticed the little words so as not to offend. And yet to me that's actually quite important as it speaks to me, how do I relate to others? Am I relating in a real sense or am I trying to impose what I think the world is on other people? The other thing, that, and this is a short passage, I've almost run out of things to say because there's only five verses, but as Nate was talking about moving into the, king, into the kingdom of St. Clair because of the, through the gates that God's opened to us, it seems to me we're being asked to do something we don't necessarily have the resources to do. Possibly we've only got one line. Are we prepared to cast it in? We should be concerned about whether God wants us to be throwing our line in, not whether we're going to catch lots of fish. Are we willing to invest the, the resources we have? Because if we invest the resources we have and we're successful, it'll be because God provides, not because we've got lots of energy, not because we've got lots of money or because we're great people. Because when I think about reaching out to St. Clair, I think, well, I don't live in St. Clair. What can I possibly do? I can't really get involved. I, you know, I've got a little bit of Sunday time, maybe one, one afternoon a week or something. My, I'm overwhelmed with what I don't have to offer the process. My question should be, does God want me involved in this? Whatever I can offer. Maybe what I can offer is the ability to wash dishes so the people who do live in the area can spend more time relating to people we meet. I don't know. Am I prepared to invest what I have in order to follow God's will, if that's his will for me? My question is, should be, does God want me involved in this? I don't have to be. I, 
yeah, I don't know. And so that's that passage speaks to me there. Peter was asked to do something which he didn't have the resources to do. I think God is asking us to invest in this area and maybe with resources we wish we'd done, we had more, maybe we wish we were bigger, had more people, had, I don't know, maybe a different time. But I think if, we're, if God is really calling us to invest in the area, he'll provide. And that's what we need to be worried about, not whether we have the resources. Are we willing to rely on God's provision to work here? I don't know. But yeah, the passage is simply saying, Jesus is God's son. He goes above and beyond. Are we willing to go and be up, go above and beyond our obligations? Are we willing to be Christ's examples here? And hopefully Nate will give me more than five verses next time. Because uh, I'm sort of out of things to say right about now. So if, um, John, do you have another song? Yeah, we do. Cool. Thank you, folks. <laughs>